Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. First of all, I'll be at Largo in Los Angeles. That, I just want to uh, make sure we know that. I, you know, it's going to get to a point where everyone in Los Angeles, between Largo and Dynasty Typewriter, will have seen me somewhat. I think, I think at Dynasty, on the 14th, I'm actually going to do some sort of improvisational uh, crowd work show and record it for that. August 14th. Is that when it is? Do I even know my own dates? What's my own calendar? Yeah, 14th. Same day, apparently, my window cleaner comes. So look, today I talked to uh, James A. Caster, a comedian who I watched for a minute and stopped watching one time. When his four Netflix specials came out, I thought the audacity, the uh, the swagger, the confidence of someone to drop four fucking hours on Netflix at, at the same time. This British kid in his corduroy jacket, I'm not having it. I watched 10 minutes and I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. How can this go on for another three hours and 15 minutes? I thought to myself, but then like I kept hearing about him and then he was up in Montreal. And then I thought like, well, let me get, get a load of this dude. And then I watched more of it. I didn't watch all four, but I definitely watched a couple and I was taken with his microphone and the mic cord material was pretty great too. Interesting weaving of sort of expanding uh, reality into nonsense and then coming back around to real stuff. And the uh, the newest one was uh, was pretty good. There was some power hitting there. He's a very smart guy, very clever guy, and uh, and courageous guy, really, in terms of material. I was happy to talk to him. But before we get into that, something happened yesterday. Many of you know that I have Sammy and Buster. Buster being the black cat, sweet cat, smart cat, knows what's up. I think there's a human inside that head. Uh, he might have kidney problems. It's unclear. Don't know how much kidney uh, juice he has. He went into renal failure when he was very young. Doesn't matter for the story. I also have Sammy, the very uh, sweet Sammy. Little sweet Sammy, the orange and white tabby. He's a little little tough guy, uh, uh, Sammy is. He's, he's, a, he's a squat cat. Buster's a lanky cat. Sammy's a stout little guy. He's a very nice guy, kind of dumb. Buster is a little, a little nervous, very smart. Anyway, doesn't matter. What happened was, got back to the house the other day, day before yesterday, and I heard something out back. 
and Kit and I go out back and you know I'm like, what's that noise? And she goes, oh my God. And there was a cat underneath the, the stairway. This, this cat runs out from underneath the, the backyard staircase. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And she goes, oh no, there's more. There's kittens. So there's like three kittens in there. And they weren't there. I would have noticed this. I noticed this cat a couple of days ago running across the street. I'm like, whose fucking cat is that? Well, I don't know whose it is, but now there's three kittens under my staircase with this cat freaking out. So Kit feeds it, and then uh, this morning I wake up, and uh, there's only just one kitten by itself under there. She had fucking split and moved them. So I took the one kitten out, tiny little th- thing, put it in a box with a nice uh, blankie, and Kit took it over to the Humane Society to feed it and get it on its way to uh, being domesticated, living the life, got out. But where's the other thing? I thought, well, she must have went somewhere else. Took the other th- two, probably planning on getting that other guy. I feel bad, but there's the right thing to do. And turns out she, I looked at the first place I looked, I found her under the deck, down the, at the end of the deck. I stuck my head under there. It's only about a half a foot of uh, space where you can look under there into the dark. And there she was just glaring at me. I mean, I could see a, a kitten. So I fed her. She ate it. And then uh, she split. And I went out there with Kit and we looked under there. We could at least make out one kitten. There's a gray one, a black one. And then the one I got, gray and white. But we didn't know what to do. And apparently, because I can't get at those kittens now, we can't trap her and get the kittens because it's not that easy. Now we've got to wait a couple weeks feeding her. But then I run into the lady from next door who I just met. And she's carrying her dog. And she's like, oh, yeah, I got to tell you something. There was a cat with four kittens in my carport. And I saw her moving. I'm like, yeah, she's under my deck. And she said there were four kittens. I'm like, four? When I saw them yesterday, the next day, there was three. How'd she lose a kitten? I don't know. I don't, maybe the count is weird. Maybe she got three under there. I, all I know is I got one out. And, and, uh, and now I, got, I know there's at least two kittens under my deck and a mother that I'm feeding and need to feed for a couple weeks. Why me? Why me? Do I have to take that cat? Is that, I, feel, I feel an almost immediate attachment to these cats, this little guy that I took out of there, little gray and white guy. I don't, you don't even know what they are. They're just like, their eyes are blue. Their ears are weird. None of them are going to be heinous. They're all going to be cute. But am I, do I just have an emotional attachment to the spectrum of kittenness starting at week two, week three? I mean, I can't assume that I have a particular attraction to this particular. Me think you do. Like Sammy, I was a little nervous about because Sammy had this perpetually worried face and it was not it was not comforting and it was not cute. It was always like sort of what's the matter, man? What? It's not that bad. Just he looked worried all the time when he was like four weeks old, five weeks old, six weeks old, just total worry face constantly. Blue eyes, worried faced. And then it went away. I don't know if I'm going to end up with this cat. But I believe we did the right thing. I believe we did the right thing. James A. Caster uh, has a book coming out later this year. James A. Caster's Guide to Quitting Social Media. He's also announcing tour dates today. So you can go to his website, jamesacaster.com, for details on tickets. And we did this in a hotel room. And it got good. Yeah, I never know what's going to happen. This is the one thing about what I do. I do not know how it's going to go because I'm relying on a conversation unfolding. And it did. Here is me and James A. Caster unfolding, unpacking, and uh, 
stacking. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. You ask me how often I do this. I, not as often as I used to, because exactly the type of panic I'm in right now. Yeah. The fury and the panic yeah. of having no control over what's about to happen outside within minutes. Was that always there at the beginning? Or did you? Oh, were you also like quite excited about... The podcast and it oh, yeah, growing, yeah. Yeah. and so it was overriding oh, yeah. all of that. But it was more of an urgency of that we have to deliver a yeah. new episode every Monday and Thursday, yeah. no matter what. And that time that I did it at an airport, mm-hmm. I didn't know if I was going to make it home because there was a problem with the flights, and I was supposed to record that day for the next day, but I had equipment. Yeah. So I thought, like, well, fuck it. And I went to uh, one of the lounges, and I said, I need a conference room. I paid, like, a couple hundred dollars just to sit there and do a fucking intro because I didn't want, you know, there was an urgency to it. Yeah. And I'm starting to realize as I get older, I don't know where you're at, that uh, I'm probably totally irrelevant in the big picture. What? For, in, what, in general. In life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, podcasters, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't, like, that's, that's the new struggle. Yeah. Is like, uh, does it fucking matter what I'm doing? Yeah. I, I, also, just how quickly... I'm very. I just, just discovered how just fragile I am uh, mentally with that. How quickly I go to that thought. Yeah. I pulled my back for the first time ever this week. Um, doing what? Just uh, I bent down. A, I, I was putting some uh, rubbish in a bin. It yeah. Skip. Yeah. Dropped some of it. Bent yeah. down to pick it up. Yeah. And <laughs> absolutely, just killed my back. Yeah. And uh, you know, over the last few days, having to deal with it. The amount of times I thought, do I even matter <laughs> in my head? I'm like, oh, it's, it's over now. It's over now. You've pulled your back. You're not going to live forever. I, that's uh, it. Well, that, okay. So that's the, I'm not going to live forever thing. Yeah. The thing that I think is, is fucking my head up is like, I'm 58. So you're, you're 20 years younger than me, whatever. Yeah. It's just that, like, you know, I've done a lot of work. I put a lot out there. And, but there's a never-ending appetite for the work. Mm-hmm. There's, no, the, there's no pause where anyone's going to sort of look back at the great work. You know, like that, that era seems to be over. Yeah. You know, like there, there were guys that you grew up with that I grew up with. And you kind of like, look at the great work they did. But now it's just sort of like, we just need more. Just, yeah. We just need more shit. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, there's some part of my brain that's exhausted. But you seem to be able to generate plenty of shit. Yeah, kind of, but like, but also like, you know, just do, doing things that I'm very, if, if I'm enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And any time I've said yes to something that, yeah. uh, you know, I just saw pound signs or yeah. whatever, yeah, then that's when it's bad. And I, and I realize I'm, I'm 
I shouldn't have said yes to this and I'm making something that's bad or uh. or I'm making something that's not going to get anywhere. I, I, I've been in the situation of waiting to see if something gets the green light and gets commissioned and I'm hoping it doesn't yeah. because I know that if I have to do this... The dread. It'll be bad. It'll be bad and I'll be making the bad thing. And, yeah. uh, for, and then for however long. For, yeah, for as long as it... <laughs> As long as the bad thing goes on for it. Yeah. Well, yeah. A couple questions like I had, because like I, I remember when you're, how many, what did you do, 12 specials for Netflix? <laughs> four, four, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember like, you know, because there's a whole generation of comics that I don't know. I don't know where they come from. I don't, and I don't know a lot of the, the British guys. Mm-hmm. But um, but like I just remember when it came out, it's like this guy just did four. He dropped four. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Who does that? Right. So I immediately resentful. Yes. And uh, I'm like, who's <laughs> who's this young dude who's just going to drop four specials? So I remember I started to watch one and I was like, I, I'm just not going to do it. Out of, yeah. out of spite. <laughs> out of spite, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And so, but then like I, I realized that you've done all this other stuff. So I went back and then I saw that clip that was going around about the, you know, the Christians and the, the yeah. trancing. Which is like an area where I, I, I like to uh, talk about. But uh, mm-hmm. so I went back and I watched some of the specials. And like the first thing I got is that where, where'd you get that mic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I had the to cord. Get, yeah. So that was uh, there's one of the shows. Because all, all four of those shows was shows that I did over quite a big period of time and then filmed them all at once. But there okay. was like yeah, six, right. six years of touring them and then doing the next one. Mm-hmm. And I think one of them, um, it just happened that like, I had a red stool that the venue had for the month in Edinburgh. Uh, so I was using this red stool anyway. And then uh, the backdrop, I, I wanted a backdrop last minute. Yeah. Because uh, the stage was too deep and it looked mad. Yeah. So they were like, we've got this red curtain. And I thought, this looks stupid. I've got a red curtain and a red stool. Yeah. Um, and then so I just lent into it and all the red clothes I had in my suitcase I wore for the show as well for the for the one in edinburgh yeah yeah Yeah. so then when it came to doing that show on tour i think my tour manager just suggested it and just went do you want us to get you a mic that is also the same color as everything else and i just said yes to it and uh managed to and and then just like just yeah i don't know if you've had it but you you just don't even look for stuff and you find it so i had to buy a new mic cord and then found one that matched um the rest of the you know, it was a yellow one that matched yeah, the, the, the pattern nice. on my tie. And then I had to get new shoelaces and walked into a shop and it was like the exact same as my mic cord shoelaces, which no one has ever noticed, obviously, who's watched the specials. But uh, yeah, and then, and then it just, when, when, then when filming the specials, I was like, let's have that for all four of them and try yeah. and do the color thing. Well, I, I noticed it right away because I'm like, I, that, this is the only thing we work with. I'm very hung up on microphones. I'll, I only use ones with wires. I yeah. won't use one with no wire because it bothers me. Yeah. I feel untethered. They're usually too fat. They don't fit into a mic stand properly. Yeah. So, so when I saw that mic, I started looking for colored mics. I'm like, where the fuck? What kind of mic is that? Where would he get that mic? Yeah, someone court, had to spray it. There's someone guy they did it. it. Yeah, sprayed it for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I realized after yeah. I couldn't find one. <laughs> <laughs> that that you had it was a it was a set deck job. Yeah, somebody from props did it. Yeah, yeah, someone had done it and. Um, uh, I've got it still somewhere at home. I'm very f- fond of it, obviously. But Do you like, take it with you when you? No, go? for for the last tour, I just used whatever mic I had in, in the venue, and then when we filmed it, um, I, I worked with the same production company who filmed the Netflix ones, yeah. and uh, they are 
even more meticulous over detail than I am. So they were like, you can't just use a normal mic because you used the spray one for the last one. So they got a mic and sprayed it the colours of that show oh, and okay. gave it to us. But I just used it for the, the taping. Right. Um, so you're now you're the guy that they're like, we got to spray a mic. That's it. Now, if I ever do a show that's a normal mic, everyone's going to go, oh, he's slipping in stand. I'm not going to bother watching that based on the photos because he's clearly not caring well, I, anymore. I, I, I- I'm very specific about mics. You get, you sort of get attached to things. <laughs> you know, I don't bring them. I don't. I'm not one of those guys that brings a mic to the gig. Yeah. But I, if it's a weird mic, I'm like, where, where did you even get this? Just sure. get a 58. I yeah. mean, wait, there's one mic. Why, yeah. why, why fuck with that? I don't know. So, but I don't know about a lot about what's going on with the. Like, I had a bad experience at Edinburgh. Okay. Years ago, and I, I ran into. The woman who put me through it last night, mm-hmm. the gilded balloon lady. What's her name? Karen. Karen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I I bumped into her the other day. <laughs> she. It wasn't her fault. Yeah. I, I didn't know of course. the 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 way it worked. Yeah. Like I I would I, my wife had just left me. Mm-hmm. It was like 2007 maybe, and she brought me over on a double bill with Kirk Fox, which I didn't yeah. realize like already out of the gate strike against you. <laughs> Double bill means these guys are green, uh-huh. they don't have full shows, and they're Americans. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. So right away, I had no idea. Uh, so, But it was produced, so I didn't need to fly her. But no one came. I was there for a fucking month. Yeah. And you know, I'm maxing out at like 22 people. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd just been left. And the guy I was working with was annoying me. And he, we were living together. And during the month I was there, his mother died. Oh, God. Yeah. And I thought, well, this will open up the time for me. I can, you know, he'll go home. I'll do. Is it first fault? Is that your first fault? Yeah. yeah. Straight to that? No, no, no. No, I felt bad because I was like, what are you yeah. going to do? Because yeah. I just assumed you'd probably go home. He's like, no, I'm going to write it out. So like sure. now I'm dealing with a, a slightly sadder guy that I'm living with. Yeah. And I'm. I'm in the middle of a separation. So uh-huh. it was just, and we're doing a show every night for nine people. It was fucking devastating. Awful. And then you go, I don't know if you have this problem too. Like, it's just not enough about me generally at any festival. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like, I go to festivals, people are like, it's great. You get to see people. All it does is remind me how many fucking comics there are. Yeah. And how, again, how little I truly matter in the big picture. <gasps> you grew up in festival culture, really. Kind of, yeah. Like when I started stand up, um, I wasn't that aware of Edinburgh. Yeah. But people said to me straight away, like, you need to go. And, and all my friends were going, who I was yeah. like, all my new friends are in comedy. And I went and like, but yeah, the first Edinburgh I went to, you know, it was, it was last minute decision. Yeah. And I lived in Ketrin, uh, in Northamptonshire, like in the middle of England. And yeah. I didn't live in London. And I got a 12 hour coach to get there because I, uh, I couldn't afford to get the trains. Yeah. So this very long coach journey and I camped uh, it's, uh, outside of the festival for two weeks. Um, in, it, in the wilderness? Yeah, like in a little campsite that was in a bowl-shaped field that was like, and, on, and it was torrential rain for the full two weeks. So on night one, my tent just got washed away and, and all of my belongings got soaked and flooded. And that was like night one of two weeks. And I didn't have any gigs booked. Uh, I was just going to go and try and get on bills yeah. and turn up and ask to get on, um, you know. Can you do that? Free, Is that? Yeah. But like, but they have to be like free entry, mixed bill gigs that yeah. do different lineups every day. Right. I would just show up, ask to be on. Most of the time, in the first couple of days, they'd tell me, we can get you on tomorrow and put my name down. And it was. And by the, by the end of that two weeks, I was doing six gigs a day. And I was, I'd been doing comedy since January and it was August. And it was 
by far the most invaluable two weeks of my entire career still it was like really you know i found my first routine that actually repeatedly would work during that two weeks interesting um, yeah and uh learned a lot about oh maybe this is who i am as a comic but but it was you know pretty brutal and you de- definitely felt like um yeah the, on, on the grand scale of things with this festival i'm absolutely nothing because i've just started and sure. uh yeah i have i have a gift of feeling that way throughout my sure. career you can always far find a ways of feeling like it yeah yeah it's it's always possible but that's it so you were doing comedy how long when you took that on so it's like yes yeah, six well seven months something like that and what was the what was the, what were you doing before i was uh in bands i played the drums in a series of bands with my mates uh so are I you a good drummer i was I, I used to teach the drums and like that was like uh, what I did after school. I really? taught the drums. I worked in a kitchen part time and but I wanted to be in a band like I was in a band with some friends. I didn't didn't go to university and we just were like we're going to be this we're going to change the world with our music and it's, it's going to be like that. You believed it. We really believed we were going to reinvent in, yeah. everything. Oh, good. Like it in- was really lofty ambitions now we were our only fans as well no one liked us it was went very badly at gigs and <laughs> who uh, were you modeling yourself after we who, what was the what, what was the, like you know we're gonna do it like who yeah i think we wanted to be like a more kind of uh clean uh like version of frank zappa but with the vocals of the beach boys wow uh, and we were not talented enough mark and there were only two of us so it was very hard to achieve that <laughs> a clean version of frank zappa with yeah vocals like the beach boys yeah and wow. uh yeah what's funny is like you know like you, those are both you know relatively like i imagine that the beach boys you aspire to were the the kind of brian wilson driven deep yeah you know like the it wasn't just the pop beach boys it was like right it was constantly every band practice would have a lunch break at some point and every lunch break my friend graham who was also in the band would put on uh the either the pet sounds right. or, uh recording sessions yeah so it was just brian wilson talking to starting the wrecking crew stopping it telling them let's turn that up let's try that again doing yeah. it again yeah uh or it was like listening to a documentary about Smile or something like that. So it was all, it was that so, every every day. So two entirely esoteric American <laughs> musical talents in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it was, but there's a certain type of people that like just. I can't listen to Brian Wilson. It's too sad. For you me. can't at all. Not really. But so it didn't yeah. work out. It didn't work years. out. Um, but and when it stopped, I was like, I just. I, I've been trying to be in bands since I was 13. I learned the drums that. I started learning the drums when I was seven. When I was 13 at school, yeah. I was trying to make every single one of my friends be in bands with me, trying to make people care about it. By the end of that band, I was 22 and I didn't have the energy yeah, yeah. to try and find more people again, try and make them care again. So I started doing stand-up because I didn't have any qualifications, didn't have like any backup plan, but I, I knew I liked being on stage and I liked um, traveling around and doing gigs and seeing different parts of the uk so what so what what about your folks you have brothers and sisters yeah i got younger brother younger sister and, uh and were they supportive of the whole thing? yeah they all were well the thing is that i'd done one or two stand-up gigs while being in the band still just to see if i could do it for like because i was a big fan of stand-up and just wanted to do it for the fun of it and my sister had been to one of the gigs and kind of came away going i think you should do that yeah. <laughs> uh, and my parents i'm probably one of the only comics whose parents said 
you know, a safer bet might be that you do stand up. Because like, they were like, you know, your sister says she saw you at that gig, uh, so maybe do that. Because yeah. before I cared about stand-up and just did gigs every now and again, I just yeah. always had a good gig because I didn't, I didn't care about it. Right. So I'd go on stage and just mess around. I didn't care how good it was or how... And so it would go quite well. Yeah. And I thought in my very naive head, I was like, oh, so that means it's easy. So I'll just do that and it'll be easy. And yeah. then as soon as I started trying to do it properly, every gig went badly. And was very, very difficult because I was, you know, I was going, well, if I'm going to do this, yeah. if I'm going from being in this band that was going to change the world, I need yeah. to now do something that has at least some artistic merit. So let's think about the routines you really want to do and what you really want to say on stage. And of course, I wasn't good enough to do any of those uh, yet. So it was fully. But that was, but that was sort of, that was the intention. You, I mean, because like, who, like, when, you didn't have any other jobs really, though, before. When I was doing stand-up, I was like uh, working in kitchens still, oh, yeah. uh, washing up and... Not, uh, not teaching drums? No. Uh, well, I think, no, I was teaching drums for the first year of maybe doing stand-up. And then I moved to London and I was a classroom assistant in the daytime at a school for autistic children. What's that, a, what's that mean, classroom assistant? Uh, so just like, uh, not the teacher, but the person who's like just helping out the kids yeah, yeah. who need extra help. And, oh, wow. and How do you get a that. gig like that? Uh, I had... Weirdly, so classroom assistant, you don't need any, you can just apply. Oh. But the fact that I taught kids the drums and I'd done some respite work with uh, a kid who had uh, Down syndrome. So I'd worked with people with special needs before. So it it like kind of made it that, okay, you can probably do this job. Yeah. And uh, so I did that for nine months. And, luck, and at the end of that, and I really enjoyed it. Like I didn't, I, I was doing it because I was like, well, that gives me my evenings free to sure. do gigs. That was the main reason I was, you know, I was moving to London just to do gigs. There's no point doing a job that's going to get in the way of that. So I'll work and then do gigs in the evening. Yeah. But I really got invested in it and really uh, there's so much problem solving in it. Um, Working with the autistic kids? Yeah. Like you got, you got to learn what each kid, you know, what, what triggers them, what will calm them down, what they, you know, what right, they, like, they right, like, how they right. communicate. And that would be really fascinating and um enriching each day sure, yeah i mean like there's something that really grounds you about like doing real service work <laughs> right you know what i mean like mm -hmm. when you're really working with people that, that have help and it's not just as simple as like you know well my problems aren't that big or whatever but it, it almost it makes you understand what it what it feels like to what you're supposed to feel like as a good person right yeah well the whole thing is an exercise in empathy if you're working with people with autism that's right because you have to think in any situation, right, what in this room is potentially going to make them feel uneasy? Yeah. And uh, and how am I going to deal with that? So you're, you know, having to constantly think, how do these seven individuals all feel in this environment? Yeah. And, and it would, I definitely think for that time when I was working there, I was a lot more um, kind of forgiving with most people, like, just outside of work yeah. as well of like if they were behaving like a jerk yeah 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 i'll be like yeah but it's probably because of all these factors and right uh, right right and not just because they're just right. a bad person sure yeah and uh although you know work could be quite intense i was working with one kid one-on-one -on -one who wasn't autistic he had emotional behavior difficulties yeah. he was misdiagnosed and put in this school yeah uh, and it would be quite difficult all day long and then i would go and do a gig in the evening and if anyone heckled me i had to not respond 
because I knew unload. if I respond, it's going to be everything that I wanted to say to that kid in the day, <laughs> just unleashed on this one person who was just wanted to join in. <laughs> I remember it in there. Were, well, that's like that attitude of like uh, 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 the sort of British attitude about hackers that they just want to join in. Like that's like that's yeah. not good either. No, <laughs> none of it's good. <laughs> yeah, I would have probably chosen to unload on the heckler. Yeah, well, I've done some gigs where I've done that and really, really regret. I, I don't know how you feel when you choose to let them have it. But more often than not, I I go away going, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. And I really regret saying the things to that person. And I know a lot of the time now, comedy, good comedians are painted, and it's like quite a small minority of comedians, but they're very vocal, as being like, I don't give a shit how the audience feels. I'm going to say whatever. And this is... And, uh, I think most comedians just come away going, I don't think I should have said that. Should I have said that thing? I think that hurt that person's feelings. Oh, no. <laughs> even, oh. even even the, the real revolutionaries? Like, yeah, yeah. Man. I think they were. Yeah, I've, I've, I've made some very bad choices because not unlike, I know that I have a, a, a sort of eternal well of, of resentment yeah. and, and emotional, weird emotional neediness that underneath i guess most of us are very sensitive mm-hmm. so depending on how the set's going like if the whole thing's not going well and somebody yeah. you know speaks up it it's it's gonna go badly for yeah. everybody and you can't win because there's that line where you're dealing with them and you know that there it's you, you have a very delicate balance to have the rest of the people still with you mm-hmm. but as soon as you cross that as soon as the audience is going like oh for god's sake leave that guy alone and then yeah. the whole thing's fucked I did a thing once. I saw a documentary once where a group of uh, chimps in the jungle <laughs> yeah. chased another chimp down and killed it. Oh, that's that, the, the Jane Goodall thing? Maybe it was a Jane Goodall thing. All I remember is that the chimps are kind of walking away at one point and there's the dead body of the yeah, chimp on yeah, the floor. Yeah, yeah. And another chimp just, it's like the last chimp walking away decides to double back, go back and just gives one punch to the corpse and then continues to walk away. And there's, that image, sometimes at gigs, yeah. you feel that line where you've gone, I've just doubled back and punched the corpse in front of everybody. <laughs> and that was, and that's too much for everyone. Like that person's already that done. It. And yeah. I've gone, I've moved on. And everyone's thought, oh, we're moving on now. And then I've gone, yeah, and by the way, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and, and, and it's gone back again. And it's yeah. like, why? I'm trying. That is my main, I don't know about you, but like during mm. lockdown, I was really, realized uh it's my longest amount of time not doing stand right. since me i started too. doing me stand. too and i really liked it and i didn't yeah. miss stand up at all i and had the same experience yeah during lockdowns i was very much like oh i would happily never do it again it's like a relief. It, I, it's a I, I don't relief. i don't feel like i need to i feel like as you say i feel healthier yeah i feel like my body is not being put through as much every evening um, and the brain, though, because like, I'm—I I don't know where you generate, but I mean, you—you you seem more able to, to generate from, you, you, you know, to to sort of like, you know, your your craft is very good, and you, you know, you—I think there's something about the the way long like guys in in Europe do long form comedy. Yeah, I think you because of Edinburgh and the and these that there's you see it as a show, mm-hmm. and you you at least are going to tie it back around somehow. And, you know, I picked that up later in my career, but you can sort of go off on things that, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not, my brain's not going to think of like, it needs to be existentially important. (laughs) 
to me. Yeah. And and like and, and I'm not sure entertainment was always my intention. Uh-huh. But <laughs> you seem to have found peace with, you know, finding relatively mundane things that you can make into to heighten. And I wish I had I had that skill. I don't know that I do. Well, those Netflix shows were that. But then the show I did after, where that clip is from that you mentioned no, earlier. No, I watched, I watched the first half of that. Yeah. So that's more... Yeah. The, the end of that half is uh, yeah. just whimsical jokes. But the first half of that is as true stories. And then the second half is all true stories and very personal. And I feel that when now I've stepped over into that, it feels weird being on stage and not doing that. Uh, being personal yeah or just for the audience it feels weird to be like why are you saying you're an undercover cop again or whatever because like actually we know you now um so that that makes it well i i well well that's interesting so first go back to lockdown like mm. you you felt good you felt comfortable and you felt but also didn't it give your brain a rest yeah gave and like just so much less anxiety and um less self-doubt i i, I get very um, I doubt myself so much with this and my confidence gets very low very yeah, quickly yeah, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily matter what... And, and also people, uh, very nice people who are correct in their behavior and what they say to me, are uh, saying like, yeah, we'll try and go like, but this is going on and this is going on and people like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know they're right. Yeah. But I also know that how I'm feeling isn't a logical... It's not a logical feeling. For whatever reason... Uh, I feel like what I'm doing, whatever my stand-up is or whatever, is very uh, throwaway, trite. Um, this other thing that I've seen someone else do is high art. It's beautiful. It's perfect. I just watched it. I think it's so That's good. That's what I'm doing right now. You know, yeah. Like, I, I watched a film the other day that just made me go, oh, I'm never going <laughs> to. I'm never going to do that. I, I, what, and, uh, what, what film? It was. I mean, it's a film I've seen a lot, but it was. It was I watched *Inglorious Bastards*. <laughs> yeah, and I went because I just felt like watching it again. Yeah. I was like, oh, I watched. Yeah, this will be fun. Yeah, right. And then it was just putting myself through. I was like, oh, every scene in this, <laughs> it's perfect, and the way he shot it, and the oh, this is a matter like oh, just think about actually the concept of it. He's, you know, I take it for granted, but he's done this whole yeah, yeah. fictitious story, but based around like the Nazis and the uh, the Second World War. Yeah. This is actually such a big achievement. And uh, the final shot is amazing. It's this perfect. And the, <laughs> yeah. uh, just down to like BJ Novak's little smirk at the end. And yeah. then it cuts. And you're like, fuck it. Like, so good. Yeah. And then like that pause and going, oh, I'm never going to, Never gonna do that, and no, no one, no one cares about my fucking Netflix specials, or like, like, yeah. like, like no one cares about that. And, and uh, that, so many things I've done have been bad. And- that's layered, layered for me because I have actually a personal kind of insecure, driven resentment of B.J. Novak. So, <laughs> that, my experience with that would have been like, there's two reasons why. <laughs> Like, how the fuck did that kid get so successful? And I'm never going to make a movie. You know, like, yeah, sure. That, 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 that doesn't help. <laughs> but but I yeah. but see, but I try to deal with that all the time. Like, right yeah. now, like, I'm in that right now. Mm. And I've been doing this a long time, and I don't understand it. But you understand, and, and I think you're right, that it's a part of the brain that's sort of this useless appendage. It's like this self-loathing, uh, this hammer that we hit ourselves with, even though there's given our our experience and and what we've created already why 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 even have that anymore mm. 
you know, you've done like nine shows or however many hours, but still is there this thing. It's like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. And I'm going to judge myself against somebody who's doing something that I haven't even set out to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even. But then I think when it's the useless appendage thing. So I'll convince myself sometimes that it's useful. So there's that thing of like, it's like you're both characters in Whiplash. <laughs> so you're both of them. You're, so like you're both of them. Yeah. And and the whole thing is like the whole debate of that film of like, you know, is that person, does that help having someone yell at you that you're fucking awful all the time and that you're useless, you're a piece of shit, and then does that drive you to greatness and you can't achieve that unless you got... So sometimes I'm like, well, the reason I work very hard is because I feel insecure and like I'm not good enough. Right. So I'm constantly trying to be good enough all the right. time. Yeah. Um, but then... But there's no, t- there's, there's no cap to that. No, there's no so cap. To it. Right, so so you can't win that one. You can't win, and also like it, it's not gonna. There were more important things, so it's it's trying to like uh, that last tour I did with uh, with that the, the latest special. Yeah. By the end of it, I I just hated being on stage, and I hated doing stand up, and it made me feel bad about myself. You hated the repetition. No, I just hated. Um, it, it was the most I'd ever hardest I'd ever worked on a show. It was two hours long. Uh, I got way outside of my comfort zone doing personal stuff and talking about my mental health when before I just hid behind this thing of saying I was doing jury service or something fake and the work in progress shows have gone really well because work in progress you're always in front of very dedicated comedy nerds who like to see see the process yeah so even though your material isn't that great yet they don't they give you quite generous with their laughter and then for me, every time, every time I then tour the show, yeah. when it's finished, yeah. they're to the people who are more casual comedy fans. They might have seen you on one or two things. Right. And they would turn up. And on the last tour I did, all those people turned up and they heckled from the start. They heckled if I was talking about, especially during the mental health bits, they'd heckle with some pretty weird, inappropriate stuff that wasn't very kind. Yes. And um, I just started to get very bored of it and very like, why did I put that much? Also, I was tired. I was, I didn't give myself any time off that. Yeah. And when I'm tired, I get very negative. I was like, why did I spend, you know, over a year honing this show? Yeah. To then go out and tour it to people who I may as well have just gone out and roasted everyone in the audience, and they would have been happy. I could have gone out and been shit, and it would have been just as good to them because they don't care. And I felt very much like this you know what's the fucking point of this like i I don't want to do it anymore um but also though the the thing that you did as well and and i do it as well is you made yourself vulnerable to a room full of fucking monsters sure (laughs) sure so like you know there there's something about like if you're just if you're not doing well with stuff that the only risk is you, you know making something funny yeah like if you if you've made it a thing where it's like this is a funny bit and you know my emotional risk is only that I'll feel shitty because it didn't get the laughs. Mm-hmm. You know that rejection, that that sort of baseline, the job of comedian rejection, yeah. and however we deal with that. But once you start like putting your heart out there, which you know I do fairly often, uh, you know you've really got to find a trustworthy bunch, or, or at least that audience. But so, I mean, you have an audience, but you've taken the shift where you're showing more of yourself. And then all of a sudden the audience is sort of like they get uncomfortable because there's they got to hold up their end. Mm-hmm. There's an emotional responsibility to them receiving, uh, you know, your honesty. 
Yeah. Well, and, some of them are like that. Yeah, right. But yeah. The, but then there's always one asshole, and there's yeah. the, and and they are the people that we've not liked our entire life. Yeah, <laughs> but, and, and that's the the problem with that, especially going back to being brutal to hecklers. Yeah, is that you know you go through. You know, just coming here to Montreal at the airport, yeah. there's a lot of awful people at the airport who are <laughs> sure. pushing in queues and yeah, yeah. getting right up to the baggage carousel so no one else can see their bags and yeah. just because they want theirs yeah. so Those badly. People, yeah. And you hate them all yeah. and you can't say anything to them because you're not that kind of person. You don't want the confrontation. But when you're on stage, they might be in the audience and you can say it. Sure. And it seems like a great thing to do. And then sometimes I realize I've misread that. They weren't that person. And now I've said all that oh. stuff to someone and I feel sure. shitty Always. about it. Yeah, sometimes they're just but, um, drunk or they just have moments. Yeah. It's, you, I, I don't imagine that given where you are in your career and, and is that you're not... You, you're not getting a lot of those people, the the bad guys, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they know yeah. who you. But They're like, such it was, a minority. But I mean, that's the sort of logic of go, going back to the autistic experience and 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 having a certain amount of empathy for everyone who does asshole things. Mm. Like I'm I'm I get livid very quickly, and I know it's it's not it's not correct. But I'm I'm also like you got to find a midway point for yourself in, in that empathy thing because mm-hmm. you can't just walk around you know apologizing for everybody and giving yeah. everyone the the leeway because you know that's how fascism happens yeah so you know like he's not that bad of a guy he's you know he just believes what he believes yeah all right but the, but the satisfaction is is limited to you know it's very hard when you're doing that kind of material to to distance yourself from the show itself because you still mm-hmm. have to do it every night and you still got to put yourself out there doing it every night and that it was a new, like, kind of exhaustion that I hadn't experienced before. Of yeah. like, especially if I went out in the first half, and someone would do a kind of dumb heckle in the first ten minutes, and the whole audience would laugh at the heckle. I would make a decision in my head of right now. I'm not doing this routine, this routine, this routine, or that routine, Ugh. and I'm doing none of them. And I'm not going to tell them that because that'd be petulant. I'm not going to go. Oh yeah, guess what? There were four routines that I was going to do, but I don't trust you anymore. So I'm not doing it. But that idiot, yeah, yeah, fucked it up for everybody. Don't want to do that, so I'm not going to say that to them. But I'd make the decision of, okay, we're going into B material for those bits now that'll be easier on me, and they won't even know because I don't want to tell them that I have suicidal thoughts. Sometimes I don't want to tell them uh, that you know that I had a breakdown in 2017. I, I don't want to talk to them about any of that because I now don't trust them and I don't feel comfortable in that and so or sometimes i would you know plow ahead and do it anyway and then they would behave the way that i feared they would behave and then you're like okay great that was trust your instinct yeah yeah i should have known that but 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 there's also but then don't you ever do the argument of like well that's going to make me tougher yeah if i'm if i'm not physically and mentally exhausted yeah like on tour when i'm that tired yeah i just kind of go I think it's. I think it will make all of us oh. collectively weaker if I do this. Like I feel right. I'm so tired. And I've seen comics when I started out in stand up. Um, the reason why I was able to quit that job at the school was because Josie Long asked me to support her on tour. Yeah. She's one of my favourite comics ever, and it was a very big deal to me. And she was doing a show that was like an hour and a half long, and the first half was like at the time what she was known for, which is like very in depth and intricately written whimsical routines and yeah. like really delivered in a beautiful way and then the second half was was this first time she'd ever dove into politics and yeah. talking about uk politics yeah. and had a lot more like righteous uh, like anger in it and frustration in it and it was a real gear shift and she would do it every night and so, and regardless of if the audience like sometimes the audience were quite clearly uh 
not there for that or yeah. they, they weren't really like a, a very comedy audience and they just come to the gig and you'd think well I would bail on that second half now yeah. because I would be scared but she'd do it every single time and I remember watching it as a new comedian and every time being really blown away by the fact she would do it no matter what right. and then after that she did two shows that were just pure political shows and you saw the fruits of that you saw like, oh that's why she did that because now she can nail that style. She, she did it in the hardest environments and now she's got two exactly. more shows that right. are that good. Um, but I will end up in those situations now and go, oh, no, I'll just eject and, and do something else because I have, I, I, sometimes I will push through and do that, you know, go down the harder route. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I find that like as I get older though, and I think always like, you know, whatever I'm ejecting to yeah. is just a little less. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's not, I don't have like you know. Well, I used to have like more cat material. So like, <laughs> like, like, like I, there were points in certain acts where because I go through these levels. Like now I'm talking about you know the the death of my partner. Yeah. You know over COVID and like there's a moment where I'm like after I've just talked about my father's dementia I'm like let's do the real stuff. Now. Yeah. You know like. <laughs> so, sure. but like, but I think the weight of that is in what you're talking about is just that. It's 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 a true emotional risk, mm-hmm. and 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 the exhaustion you're going to feel and what it does to you know people who we have a thing in common where whether it's insecurity or 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 uh, uh, you know depression or whatever that it, that insecurity or or feeling that you're not being received uh, for doing that stuff it it'll trigger a, a shift in in the way we see everything for however long that happens. Yeah. And I and I think ultimately it can stick for longer, and then you have to deconstruct it to get back to just a fucking regular day. Well, it's the thing that you know since deciding to do stand up again, yeah. After the pan, uh, not after the pandemic, after lockdowns, yeah. But like, is I, I knew that's still going to be there, yeah. And has especially having had those two years away from it, and really appreciate you needed the break. Yeah, needed the break, but going like, oh, without it, I feel better. So if I'm gonna go back to it, number one on the list yeah. of things that I'm got, I've got to do is combat that and figure that out. I've got to figure out how not to end up in that night after night again. But do you think like do you? I guess my question is, and not unlike what I felt during the pandemic, which is maybe I'm better. Uh-huh. But do you question your intentions of sharing that? I mean, because like what I've grown to believe is that, you know, with my podcast and with what I talk about on stage, that there are people that get an awful lot out of it in Mm. the sense that they feel less alone. When you talk about suicidal thoughts, Mm -hmm. when you talk about your breakdown, when you talk about like whether it's substance abuse or whatever, whether I Mm -hmm. do or or, or my suicidal thoughts or my brain, because I used to do. What was that? I used to do a bit about how, like, you know, I, I think about suicide all the time, but not because I want to kill myself. I just feel better knowing I can if I have to. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> you know, and 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 I and and that's a way for me to compartmentalize mm-hmm. suicide ideation because I have it all the fucking time. Yeah, yeah. What's your experience with it? Uh, it's it, it it was throwaway kind of like not very serious stuff, quite flippant stuff. And then in 2017, when like, and I'm still kind of figuring out what really happened to me at the start of that year because like some you know there was like little things that were like well not little things but like you know on the surface things that were short-term triggers for having a a quote-unquote breakdown but like 
I know that my head just wasn't in a good place over years of probably just like not going to therapy, not ever really doing the work yeah. and looking after myself. Yeah. And what the, how'd the breakdown manifest? Just, just straight into uh, just pure self hatred at the beginning. Really not liking myself. Yeah. I remember being in. So I went to do some gigs in New York for yeah. the first time yeah. in at the start of 2017 and that was at peak really not feeling good about myself I remember walking around New York and for the first time thinking like there's this bridge there and there's that place and then going and then really catching myself and being like okay fuck you need to right sort this out so that was like, so you that was coming from a place for me my suicidal ideation is usually from massive anxiety. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, it would be easier. You know, like, you know, I just want to know that I, I can do that to, to yeah, but like, I, I don't really want to do it, but it sounds like yeah. you were like, oh. I it was the first time that yeah. I was like, like that. But yeah. then, but then very quickly, it was like, right, as soon as I get home, yeah. I'm finding a therapist right. immediately. Uh, right. Like, cause like, you know, I, and I had it before I had a breakup in like 2015, 13 and after that i was like that was when i started going to the gym <laughs> so like i had right. that and i was like right we need to do something you can't sit around feeling sad we have to do so right. like when i'm feeling like that it's just that in the past i've always let it get that bad now yeah. i don't let it get that bad i try and keep on top of things just in my day-to-day -day. Uh. but in those two instances it was like here's something i've never done and now i feel really low so i'm going to start going to the gym all the time yeah. and then the second time was like now i'm going to start going to therapy because this has caught up with me um and it's helped massively yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you're finding but, that most of it you know you can you you can most of it is um cognitive and not chemical yeah uh yeah i think so mm. i mean i don't know sometimes it can be one or the other and like you're just trying to work through things on a case by case like i haven't had um those kind of thoughts since 2017 really actually no that's not true i have i have had moments where I've maybe haven't had that as serious a thing. That was like my brain. I was like idly almost planning stuff in my head and I don't think I would have done it. Yeah. But um, it's never been, hasn't got to that level before. Yeah. But now, you know, I'll have like every other week therapy sessions. So if I do have a thought that is like that. Yeah. In any way. Yeah. Uh, then break it down. Like, right. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Figure out why it was there. What, why, why we were talking about that. Uh, while, while I was thinking about it um, and you know yeah for a lot of it it can be like I think there's a lot of stuff tied up in and maybe sometimes you can look at like why we do stand up and and figure out if there's some self-worth things going on there or there's yeah, some, like, how much you like yourself and, 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 but it, and what, so it wavers though like you know it's like you were talking about before like you know I was working on this material I've been working on this hour and a half or whatever it is for mm -hmm. a long time and I you know I was thinking like this is going really well it's all coming together yeah. and then like I'll just watch somebody do something much easier yeah and and I'll think like what the fuck am I doing yeah I mean like what it could be so easy yeah but like anytime I've even broached that like I I get bored mm -hmm. and and I feel like I'm 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 being disingenuous mm. you know yeah but then also like uh, you know I'll watch comedians who doing something that I might think, oh, that's easier or that's, um, you know. Yeah. And then, and you think, oh, I bet they just like, oh, they, they just don't seem to care. Yeah. And have the same stresses. But then you have a car journey with one of those comics. <laughs> they're either, yeah. And they're like, 
oh, I don't get good reviews because people don't yeah. consider what I do to be art. Yeah. And, and all this, you go, oh, no, we're all yeah. doing that to ourselves. So, and yeah, a lot of us, that. except for the ones that, like, there are guys in America, and I'm sure there are mm-hmm. guys that, where you just realize, like, they're just getting away with something. Sure. And they're making a lot of fucking money, yeah. and they don't give a fuck. Yeah. They're just going, you know, they don't, they're not trying to do art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's shallow shit, but yeah. they're really good at it. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, that's the problem. There's a skill set with uh, of being an entertainer, mm-hmm. especially a comedian. That like, if you're just a guy that sort of like wants to get away with it, you know, which is yeah. like, uh, if you think about why a lot of people get into these jobs, whether they be musician or comic, it's either to get girls or not work. Really, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That there, it's a rare thing uh, for, uh, in a way, for a comic. You know, they'll pay lip service to Richard Pryor, or Bill Hicks, or whoever. You know, uh, 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 Stuart Lee. Yeah. You, you know, but. You know, clearly, you know, whatever that influence might have been, they've they journey far away from that. Sure. You know, but but it's about intent. And it sounds like the pressure you put on yourself and as I did, too, because like I'm a, a cultured guy or I, like or I aspire to having a, an impact, you know, on, on a, a lasting or at least a deeper level mm-hmm. is that there was an art to it. Like what made you think that way? I mean, the music, it sounds like you were well on your way, that you decided who your heroes were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, real obsession early on with classic albums. And, uh, like, I just loved... Just, like, there's something about an album that has resonated through generations and means that much to people. And you listen to it and feel like you're... It's, it's something communal with all those people who ever listened to it and, and there's these magical moments that have been caught especially when it's music yeah. and there's you know I love all the stories about that bit was an accident and that bit was you know they yeah, got yeah. that sound from doing this and it was so yeah it could have been so fleeting and, and they were lucky to capture it all that stuff and, and there was just something life affirming and uh I don't know, just sort of magical about those things. And then I, I, I wanted... That's for what music, I, mostly. Yeah, for music. And, yeah. That, and that's what I wanted if I was you know, in a band. I wanted to make sure. an album that would be perfect. And, and every track is, yeah. is uh, amazing. And the whole thing works as a journey. And then I, you know, I would also get that way about films and TV shows. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the very few books that I've read. Uh, but like, you know... And then we're doing stand up. At the beginning, it was just to to do it and figure it out, and, and, and let's try and learn this and get better at it. But definitely, what I wanted to do from the time I started doing stand up was solo shows, and I wanted to do hour long solo shows and go to the Edinburgh Festival and do an hour just me. And I wasn't very interested in doing a twenty minute spot yeah. at a club, right. and um, and that's not. And I understand, like, when I listen to comics, like, you've you got a Comedy Store t-shirt on, and when I listen to comics, like, talk about those kind of venues and the legacy yeah. and the stories yeah. and the people there. And I love it. And I, and I think, like, sure. oh, yeah, you know, th- those moments are incredibly special. And that is a craft in and of, of itself. And there's so much there. But I just wasn't naturally... Naturally, all I was thinking was, well, we're all trying to write an hour, right? We're all trying to well, do that's right. the, these well, solo shows. Right. Well, the line. difference is that, like, I think in America... You want to do an hour so you can headline in a general sense. Right, right. That like it was about that first hour. How do you get to the first hour so you can do the job? Yeah. Uh, of headliner. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the the benefit of 
the that sort of Edinburgh sensibility is that you know the job is like I got to get an hour solo show mm-hmm. so I can get the attention and then tour the solo show. Yes, right. Yeah, and like, but also it's like Edinburgh. The first day of Edinburgh, especially if you're a new comic, it's so exciting if you've got a solo show on there because the first day suddenly it doesn't matter what has been going on the last year. Right. Everyone is at the starting line at the same point, and I hate to like illustrate it like it's a race or it's a competition but it feels like i could have i could be the talk of this festival and no one knows who i am right now but by the end right like everyone could be going to see my show yeah and and it is just based on the quality of if i really work hard and i make this show as good as possible is how i thought in my head and i know that's not always true there might be comedians listening to this who are like I have taken incredibly honed shows to Edinburgh and everyone ignored me. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is luck involved and there can be bad luck with venues and times and all that stuff. But, and also who the hell knows what makes people like people who knows. Yeah. But I definitely, I would, I would start working on my show in September Yeah. and then take it to Edinburgh in August and the whole year would be working on the show. And I do I have a lot of bad club sets and I would with do, bits and pieces. With bits and pieces and trying new material out yeah. no matter what the gig was. Right. And um, For the sole intention of, of putting... You'd have to try yeah. it piecemeal, right? You'd have to yeah. say, like, this chunk, and then I'm going to go... Yeah, this bit's not working at the right. minute. Every time I do a work in progress, this 20 isn't working. But you never just get a theatre and, and work it as an hour or improvise? Yeah. Oh. But then, like, when I was... You know, most of my diary at that point when I was starting out was still 20-minute yeah, sets. Yeah. And so... I'm quite badly paid 20 minute sets so I thought I'm not being paid much so I yeah. may as well get something out of this that means that I get to go away and like you know, right. I, I've got I, I, I've, that bit's better I've solved that problem because I don't want there to be a 10 minute lull in the show where the material's not as good right. now that didn't mean that there wasn't those moments in the show by sure. the time I get them to but in my head that's what I was like I really yeah. don't ignore that bit and go ah that's yeah, that's fine. That that's not as good as the rest of it. The rest of it's good, you know. And so, and then, you know, I'd have really <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, you know, I do gigs abroad. I'm mean, going to Bahrain to do a bunch of gigs with some comics when I was writing the Undercover Cop show. Yeah, and inexplicably, in front of a bunch of British expats in a rugby club, choosing to go out and say I was an undercover cop, and of course, just absolutely eating shit for the whole set. Yeah, and coming off like, well, they were never gonna. That was. You, you were never going to get anything out of that that was stupid but in my head I was like all I want to do at the minute is crack this undercover cop bit so I'm not going to bother doing yeah. anything else right. no, no, I, I don't necessarily have that attitude now but like definitely back then I was like what counts is there's that month in the year where I can really go and um, get people talking a little bit yeah right in that in, but, it, but in a way it seems that in that model of the the European model is like that's also how you're going to make your living for the year, a good yeah. chunk of it. And also, I, I don't, I, I, I don't enjoy. In terms of enjoying it, we're talking about you know how much we don't enjoy it sometimes. But also, equally, I love it. I love stand up. Oh, yeah. I get, love doing stand up. I love writing thing. it and developing yeah. it. And the only time, the main thing that makes me love it is work doing the work. And so, like, if I'm not or making developing the, or it, making the work work. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just actually feeling like I've improved. Yeah. This is going better. Yeah. And so that was how I would enjoy gigs as well because yeah. I knew that the most enthusiastic I would ever be after a gig is when I'd solved a problem or got a new bit and yeah. it worked. And yeah. then that was why 
that was what got me excited about stand up in the first place. Was, right. Was but that when you do? But like when you're doing like the, uh, the, your commitment to to the undercut of a cup it, was that you knew that was going to be the framework of the whole hour. Kind of, I didn't at the start. Oh, yeah. Like it was, it was just um, stick with the. It, it was trying to just follow the thing that you, whatever it is inside you, you want to do that. You think that's funny for some reason. It's not working <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, but yeah. trust that it's funny. Yeah. So, like in those Netflix shows, at the I think the last routine in it, in the fourth show, is me with a. I've got a wooden duck and I hold it at the audience. I've got my back to them. I'm doing a very long monologue. And um, that was actually my second Edinburgh show because that show's made of a bunch of little bits from past shows. And my first Edinburgh show was just a, like, you know, often it's just the best of for most new newcomers. You just do, yeah. here's my best material and you kind of hate it by the end because yeah. you're very sick of all the stuff. And I wanted to do something different. I remember doing a gig with that duck and uh, <laughs> a 10-minute spot and trying to find what was funny about the duck. Yeah. And all I knew was that I'd stolen this duck from a pub and I wanted to do something with it on stage and yeah. I didn't know what it was and I was trying to riff about it and talk about it and I did a thing about I feel guilty about stealing it I can't look it in the eyes and I turned my back so I wasn't looking at the duck and only the audience were looking at the duck and it was a silence and no one was laughing yeah. but my friend David Trent uh, who's a comedian was on the bill and I came off and, I, and it was incredibly helpful he, did, he just he kind of said that and then he kind of mimed holding the duck at the audience and looking away from him he went that's funny and it just really helped yeah because i was like yeah that is and no one was laughing even right. even you weren't laughing david right but like but there's something in that and it is funny yeah, yeah. and it was a very very helpful moment of going like okay every show now whatever the thing it, you have that feeling about just do that so the undercover cop thing was just like there's something funny about telling them i'm, I'm an undercover cop yeah and it wasn't going well from the start yeah because it was just gonna be a routine about just I'm an undercover cop and one little routine and then move on to some other yeah. stuff because that's all my shows have been before that was bit, bitty bits. Uh-huh. And um, eventually it was stumbling along. Just carry on saying it sure. for the whole thing and actually and, it doesn't have to be a routine. Right. Do you write, but like, do you write on stage? Do you write? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's sort of the way I do it. But So you don't write it all out? No. No. And like, you know, I've considered like recently since like starting up again and going like, maybe you should go back to, because I used to write stuff out and my second Edinburgh show, uh, which is mainly what that fourth Netflix yeah. show is made of, yeah. I sat down and wrote it all. And it was also, it was like, for whatever reason, that year, that was the easiest thing for me to do. And I just found I'd sit down and get so much done. I was like, well, this is how I work now. I sit down and write everything. And this is great. And then my show after that, I tried to do that. And it was like, it was just hellish sitting there and trying to think of stuff and suddenly I couldn't. Yeah. I hated that show. And Which one? Uh, it wasn't on the... It was like some of the routines made it into the fourth Netflix show, but uh, it was a show where I mainly spent the majority of it defending Yoko Ono for the whole show and that hasn't ended up anywhere. You won't oh, see oh, that anywhere. So, oh, I see. So Is this in Edinburgh? But is it be, what, my, third, it? my third show in Edinburgh. Okay. But, but, um, uh, but also like... I don't know. I I don't. I've never like. I'll write out things. I mean, I've got you know like you know pages and pages of yeah. shit. But it looks like that. Yes. And and you know it, it's helpful, but but I, I don't abide by it. There, like there's some part of me that you know once I see it on paper, it's sort of dead. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. 
if it's on paper and I remember it and I say it out loud on stage, it yeah. sounds like I'm reciting something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not communicating with them. Right. And so much of it is I right. have to be actually communicating with the people in the right. room. Right. Leave the opening for you know something to happen. And, yeah. And it, yeah. I, I, I imagine it probably. You're saying that you wrote out a lot of the stuff that was the heavy, the show that you, you took the biggest emotional risks? No, so that one wasn't written out. Yeah, you no, can't, right? That, that one was just... you don't even know if you can say it. <laughs> work in progress, not yeah. wanting to do that show in the first place. Wanting to do a show that was about the best year of my life instead. Because I was, I just, you know, I'd had this whole thing. Yeah, so I'd yeah. had this whole thing of, well, that's the worst year of my life, what I've just had, and I hated it. So then I thought, well, obviously don't tell them that on stage, because that's not what you do as a you know you, you don't do that in your yeah. comedy so let's go out and do a show about the best year of your life and then maybe at the end you can reveal that you only wrote this show because you've recently had the worst year of your life or whatever sure and i would go on work in progress shows and try and talk about the best year of my life um and i would start talking about a happy memory and i'd very quickly the jokes i was adding on stage or improvising on stage were about negative stuff about the present yeah and that was, and they just resonated with it more because they could tell that's where I genuinely was. And then I started talking about the stuff that had happened, and uh, and at the early gigs where that went well, it was the most I'd ever enjoyed stand up. And I was suddenly like, oh, this is like a whole new thing, and it's really exciting. The honesty of it, yeah, yeah. And then you know, <laughs> you in, then you try and intentionally do that show, and then you have the, the gigs where. They you were, do an hour yeah. and they're just really upset by it and you go, <laughs> I don't think I should have told them any of that. And, um, Who do you think you, you know. upset though? Well, I, I mean, one guy in the front row, I, I, I really, he, you know, the show genuinely ended with me holding a crying audience member while the audience just filed out in silence. And it was like, Holy I'd said- shit. This is at the end of the, that special? Yeah, I'd said something, I was talking about- How, I gotta watch, I'm such an idiot. I gotta no watch worries, but I was talking about getting gaslit by my agent and- this guy had just had a similar experience with a, a family member. And um, I was basically not, I was not finding uh, what was funny about the routine that night. So I was just telling them the story. Yeah. And I was struggling to find a joke. And he said, he's on the front row and he said, it's, it's really hard, isn't it? And I thought he meant comedy. Yeah. Because obviously defensive and I was right. like, what? Yeah. So it's working program. I was trying to. He went, no, I mean, this this that kind of situation you're talking about is really hard. And yeah. I was like, oh yeah. And then he started saying, I've been through something similar. And then person the tears. And then like I just instinctively was like, oh, give the guy a hug because I don't really know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, should I be doing this? I don't know. And then uh, I, I, we kind of went, oh, do you know what everyone? Let's just. <laughs> It's there's another show got to start here in a second and I just think we're best off. We're not going to recover. I'm not going to find a big closer after this. I think we should just all go yeah. and I'll stay and talk to this man for a while. Um, but stuff like that made me kind of go, okay, you, you know, I don't want to do that to people every night. So I have to find a way of talking about this that doesn't do that to someone. Um, but right. But that's like um, interesting because it's not like people were disappointed. It was just that, like, you, you didn't know if you could uh, uh, hold your side of the emotional interaction. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and like... Because, like, I'm doing... I'm talking about the death of a loved one. Sure. And I'm talking about stuff, and I, and I can feel... But, like, for me, 
I guess it is a matter of recovery, and I think you probably could recover from it. Mm. And that you know, the only way to do that is to you sort of, you know, kind of take them in and then you know, kind of ease them out. So the overall experience becomes mm. sort of emotionally nuanced with you know, like laughing and and some sort of laughing crying and then laughing. Mm-hmm. But you want to make sure the crying is laughing crying. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so much of it is if if they want. Uh, making them want what you're about to do yeah and um, I think with that show I was in work in progress is they didn't necessarily come for that sort of stuff and I just suddenly do that I guess yeah um, how are you and, gonna know you make a change you can't tell people like you know in the promotion you can't be like this is not what you expect yeah. it's much different you might not like it come yeah. on down but I had to rewrite it so that it to make them want it to find a middle you give point. them moments in it where and you, you think about that a lot. Yeah, given moments that kind of gives them the option. If we could go down yeah. that road, we could go down that road. And then having them go, letting them realize that that road is more interesting and then doing that right. thing. Right, but, So, like just building it so you can go weave in and out. Having it in there in the materials, not literally offering it up to them, the choice, but like having having moments in the storytelling that makes them go oh the, yeah, that, yeah that would be good actually you kind of sneak it and in like with you like with what you're doing at the minute like you know they're i presume they already know yeah that's right everything before you sure you, so like they're going to be thinking if you if you tried to do a show now that wasn't about that well that's what i thought you yeah. know like i tell them right away like the whole premise of the bit i'm working on is like i thought about other options but i'm a guy who talks about himself and i thought like maybe you know i do this whole bit about like maybe a serious one person show with a jewish theme mm-hmm. you know like mark maron's kaddish a prayer for the dead you know yeah. and i build that out and like i know people who walk out of that show saying like definitely wasn't funny yeah, but yeah. i'm happy he did it he seemed to work through something and then, <laughs> and then i do a riff on like maybe a ted talk but ultimately mm-hmm. You know, I talk about it, and and as it begins, it's not it's not essentially funny, mm-hmm. but but it does get uh, get funnier once I can establish that you know I went through this horrible pain. Everybody's been in grief before, and it's very hard to deal with, and you can't control it. And and most people don't really know what to do with it. Yeah, uh, with the people around you. But the revelation is, you know, most people don't have to do anything but witness it, but stand there sometimes you know you nothing's going to make you feel better Mm -hmm. but if i say you know basically the premise of that bit that one piece is that i got tired of crying in front of strangers but you know they just stand there and you realize like you know when you're done crying you're like that was enough yeah (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah but but yeah they know that but but i'm also operating on the premise which i i think that i i don't haven't really heard you talk about because I, you're very conscious of, of taking care of your audience or at least presenting something that they're going to want to see, which I don't think about as much. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I lean more on the premise of that. You know, these feelings are common. And, yeah. and, and you know, they're not feelings that many people talk about, whether mm-hmm. they are grief or depression or all that. But they're very common. Mm-hmm. And I imagine there's a layer of resistance just in, in, in a British way. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, that it, it, I don't know how true that is because I don't live there, but there's this idea that 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 British people don't access that emotional dialogue. Well, there's different stuff of like you know, we we're definitely more repressed, not like so uh, repressed that it's um like crazy, right? But um, but there are certain things like in that show, like you know, when I did that show in America, I had a whole bit about my therapist behaving inappropriately with me yeah and 
everyone in the audience already knew what the lines are with therapy yeah and what lines you shouldn't cross sure so when i did that routine in america right it would get so many more reactions all over the place line after line because they were like they already saw oh she shouldn't have done that she shouldn't have said said that stuff and so it was really fun yeah and then i'd do it in the uk and was like okay this is a different routine now because a lot of people in this audience don't know what the lines are or they don't want to admit and that that person shouldn't have done that right shouldn't have said that so i kind of have to rewrite it and change it for for this explain it a little more yeah or just like you know i i tried some stuff where i'd make fun of them for the fact that british people never go to therapy but then like it didn't really suit the show at that point in time and also so much of that show was a tightrope walk deliberately yeah of like you know i i doing routines where I could be out of order to people and and but then not being and manage, managing to walk that yeah. line with it so it seemed a shame to get to the end and just have a jab at the audience for not going to therapy when it's um, right. there's a lot of problems in the UK of like you know uh, waiting lists for therapy people will not be able to afford it and you don't want to yeah, just tell the sure, audience sure. You, know, you should be all going when they can't all go when you've just done this show where you've tried to be as mindful as possible right. yeah. <laughs> um, so there was that as well like you know that's, right. that's not hold their hand too much for all of this and just and what about like because like i know in the in the last one there's you know there is politics and we do have a sort of an issue that i think you addressed in in i think what you were doing was essentially a character for a minute or some extension of you yeah yeah but a character that lives within somehow yeah but there is sort of a a a tribalization of of a way of thinking Mm -hmm. that's happening you know both in comedy and and in politics that is, you know, problematic and, mm-hmm. and fascistic, and and I don't, I don't think a, a, a lot of the comics who are towing that line realize how easily kind of co-opted they are by fascists. Sure, and you know, and, and it's it's a real, it's fucking a problem. Yeah, in that you know, there these this group of people that thinks they're somehow championing you know uh speech mm-hmm. um are are really sort of you know trying to dictate what comedy is and a lot of the more people of of your ilk or people who are doing something that they see as more creative and sensitive and 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 tolerant or or at least uh, empathetic uh, are sort of you know just being bullied by virtue of the existence of this momentum yeah it is i mean i don't know what, what what's it like in in the states at the minute with that well, it's just the like there, there is no like there's this idea that's sort of like of anti wokeness. Yeah, that you know, I don't even know really what that means, other than a lack of tolerance, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, a lack of faith in democracy, uh, a lack of um, of the the need to be empathetic or, mm-hmm. or to see that you know. Yeah, I get it. There was a time where everybody was sort of on the same page culturally, where you could say things like you know, words are just words. But in a world where everything is fragmented and small bubbles are existing to nourish and maintain communities, everything is 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 sort of you know relative to some sort of assault, and and can be I think um, you know kind of integrated and 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 talked about. But but ultimately, look, man, you know, people don't say you know. Uh, uh, oriental they don't say Mm -hmm. you know you know there's no reason you can't evolve past tranny and Mm -hmm. you know like there's people have been complaining like that since the beginning of entertainment but i think in a in a in a in an emotional and cultural 
and an economic bubble economy where everybody lives in their own little worlds mm-hmm. and 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 there's no that the only approach to creating a common language with any sort of kind of momentum is the bad guys yeah everyone else is just trying to nurture their world mm-hmm. and 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 find their audience whereas the broader picture is not about like let's all be together it's like you know you fucking babies yeah yeah. So yeah. and it's happened. I I don't know how noticeable is it is to everybody, mm-hmm. and but I just I realize that whatever resistance there should be to that, culturally or even comedically, is is fragmented and not not really there. Yeah. It's just people trying to do their work, you know, in 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 the shadow of this shit. Hmm. Well, that, that, I mean, anyone who's like, anytime I meet someone who doesn't do comedy, especially if they're older than me by however many years like the the first question they ask when they find out i'm a comedian is are you worried about what you can and can't say anymore uh, and yeah. that's how they think that, that comedy that, is now right, they, they right. think it's all that and and the weird thing about it seems so babyish to me really that, that, that there's the whole the main argument by a lot of people who support uh this kind of comedy that punches down a lot or whatever is that they they make out like it's a freedom of speech issue and people are trying to silence them and stop them from saying no one <laughs> is saying uh what you what you have said uh that should be against the law and you can't and exactly. you should be thrown in prison if you can't say right it. exactly but it's like it's such so it's such a weird argument it's like if, if i went up to a stranger <laughs> or even a friend and just pulled their hair really hard and hurt them. Yeah. And they went, don't do that. And I go, oh, what? I'm going to go to prison now for doing that. You're gonna, it's, like, it, it's such a weird jump. Clearly what I've done is hurtful to you. It hurt you. It was malicious. It wasn't cool. But no one's threatening to throw me in prison or, or take away my right to pull people's hair. But they're allowed to ask me, do, do not do that. It hurts. And uh, it seems so bizarre to me. And that's the only reason I wrote a routine about it was, uh, to be, well, there was a number of reasons, but definitely the initial reason was like, this will be an actual comedy routine and not just something I talk about in interviews or stuff. It's yeah. because it seemed absurd, their attitude to it. And so therefore we can, I can put it in my stand-up show yeah. because it's so, uh, it's just so illogical, this argument that right. keeps on get, get getting put up for it and, and seems because the only, funny to me but but it, and it really comes down to like who who's really threatened by this like sure. you know like it, it, to me it, it indicates a peculiar lack of intelligence mm-hmm. around what the, the the sort of it's a right wing trip man mm-hmm. you know it's it's not like lenny bruce you yeah, know this yeah. like it's not moving the culture forward to sort of um to to try to create more tolerance by by diminishing the power of 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 stereotypes and names mm-hmm. i mean that was the intention of that was to get everyone on a level playing field mm-hmm. the intention of this is something very different but i don't think it they a lot of the people that engage in it go back that far or or, or think it through that much is what i mean so so like it the and what you're saying is you can say whatever you want there just might be consequences mm-hmm. and, and you either have to live with that or or sadly what's happened because it's not about bringing people together anymore is that or just talk to people that want to talk like that yeah sure and so that by in and of itself empowers a sort of anti-democratic sensibility but and also it's hard to so if if you're a stand-up and you are on either side of this argument or whatever say you're on the side that 
we're both on and how we see things. Yeah. Having a conversation with the people who don't agree with you uh, on your podcast, you know, inviting them on your podcast sure. or going on their podcast. Because yeah. of the way the internet is now and algorithms, and you're, you're assisting that person's career and giving them a platform and helping them. So you're not just having... Right. So... So you're kind of stuck between this thing of going, well, the only people who are going to do podcasts together or interviews together or TV shows together are people who agree with each other. And I, I talk to comedians I disagree with offstage yeah. about stuff. Yeah. And I'd be friends with people who sure. I don't agree with and like have those conversations. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily go, come on a podcast with me and I'll give you that platform to say this. Because then you're, you feel that suddenly... It's not just that you're having that chat and it'll be... Because there's a real opportunity there to have an interesting conversation and maybe a useful conversation and one that could be helpful and sure. could change people's minds um, because that's what a lot of us are yearning for now because it seems like, you know, we're living in this world that doesn't make any sense to us and why are people following this? But um, but you go, as soon as I have that person on, all it's going to do is boost their career and they're not going to change. And it's just going to give them more, more people these ideas. And these are very dangerous. Yeah, you're going to get beat up. And, yeah. and, 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 sure. and they're, you know, they're going to get excited. And then not only is it like not giving them a platform, but then you're going to have to deal with, you know, who knows how much shit on social media problems and uh, platforms and for how long. Mm -hmm. And like, you, you know, I don't know how you're built for that kind of thing. I mean, like it, you know, I've learned how to deal with that shit if I say something and, and then I get, a, you know, just like a mm hundred -hmm. and I don't push my, I don't push it too far. Mm. But then I start to wonder, it's sort of, and, and then I start to like question my own, like, and I'll talk about it on my podcast and, but you know, there is such a division of audience yeah, that it, it really has come down to this idea, like anti-wokeism and these sort of like, you know, I can say whatever I want. It's like, Sure. I mean, you, you you definitely can, but it's it's almost hackneyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that there, there's no risk to it, and they think they're. And I think that's why a lot of it's become appealing to to sort of like mediocre comics and and mediocre minds is that it gives you an ideology, and it also gives you an excuse for why you may not get work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's more often than not the root of it. A lot of the time, sometimes it happens with obviously there's massively successful comedians who have been doing it lately but I think it still comes from you know we've been talking a lot on this episode about our own insecurities yeah. on stage and how we feel sure. with it and not every comic acknowledges that within themselves I think every comic has it yeah, but not every comic goes I don't think I'm good enough and so this is how that manifests on stage sometimes and I act out and I think there's a lot of comedians who don't acknowledge that in themselves will constantly convince themselves that the audience are the problem, they're the idiots, uh, the, them themselves as a comedian is completely in the right yeah. and everyone's against them. Yeah. And they're not reflecting on themselves very much. And then, That's true. Uh, and then they say those things because uh, they go, oh, I blame this group for, oh, I blame, you know, they might do it, you know, they do a routine without thinking. Often, you know, the genesis of it, if you like, trace it back for a lot of these comedians yeah. and you find the thing that started it, it's not like a pattern. It's not something they were obsessed with. They just no. did a, they did a joke that they thought, oh, that'll be funny, but their own, right. uh, yeah. Yeah. their yeah. own life experience and their own, meant that they were blinkered to this, you know, this other group's, um, you know, way of, you know, how yeah. their, their life experiences made a joke they thought would be funny. Then usually a you know a bunch of people will go. Here's why that is actually sure. quite harmful to a lot of people, 
And then because they've got the same insecurities we do, but they don't go, I would go, oh, shit. Yeah, Uh, well, thank you for telling me. I shouldn't have said that. And I see it differently. I've sought that out. Yeah, and and it's more helpful. Yeah. You know, I I had a routine in that show where I had the routine about transphobic comedians. I also had a routine about um, periods uh, syncing up if people were living in the same house. And originally, I was very gendered with the language about that of like um you know women have periods and men don't and then uh and i didn't see the thing there and someone came up to me after the show and went hey it's nice you're doing that bit at the start start about transphobic comedians but if you're doing that you should know this bit here where you're saying uh, you're basically saying you know women have periods and that's a definitive thing that's kind of that goes against that and doesn't really make sense and um you know, I think there are some there are some people who would go F- fuck off, yeah, like like right. like like oh what oh, oh, I can't do anything right. I did that bit at the start, yeah, yeah, sure. and now you're giving me shit for that and nitpicking. Oh fuck this! But but you have to kind of go because there's nothing to lose there. You got you know, you just have to go. Okay, cool. Balance thanks. it. Thanks. Change the language. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Still and works. St- still works. Maybe even better. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't hurt me in any way. Um, doesn't hurt anyone else. Yeah, I've gotten um, and that. That's it. It's a sensitivity thing, yeah. and you have to sort of decide. And and you you can make the decision to be like, I'm not going to change that. And yeah. I definitely do get uh, slightly belligerent at times. Yeah, I still possess that idea that my first reaction is like, No, fuck you. I'll get, you know. Sure. And then I got to walk it back. It's just it's the same thing as you feel after you shit on a heckler. You're yeah. like, I maybe. Yeah, I'm just gonna have to suck this up and get you know and let it go. Well, the main problem at the minute, I think, with this kind of stuff is um, those of us who thought we were goodies, right? Who thought we were the good guys, yeah. And then we didn't realize that so much of because of you know the world is just geared towards uh, people in privileged people, and we didn't realize it. And then we got told, actually, that behavior that you think is completely normal fucks this entire group of people. And because we see ourselves as the goodies, our first reaction, I definitely had this, yeah. is, I'm one of the good guys, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this whole thing. And then uh, I learned into, um, it's like the whole JK Rowling thing is just like, if you look back on the, that timeline of her, how she got to where she is now. Yeah is basically her quite proudly announcing Dumbledore's gay, by the way, everybody. And then people kind of going, okay, that's a nice gesture, but the books are done. And no point is Dumbledore gay in the book, so you talk about him. So, you know, it's nice that you've told us, by the way, Dumbledore's gay, but it would have been cool if, like, the book said he was and, uh, yeah, he could have had a boyfriend at some point and that could have been normalised and cool. Like, we would... That would have been better. Yeah. So, and then instead of kind of going, oh, okay, I hear you. She went, I'm the fucking good guy. Go fuck yourself. And it's just got to be this thing that is slowly over time. Yeah. Just escalated to someone who is deliberately antagonizing this entire community. Um, because she was like. Because she, that she thought she did something good. But that's why now in like so many films. Yeah. And very mainstream films as well. The villain in the films isn't, it used to be a cartoonish, just a, a, out and out baddie yeah who would just wanted to be bad yeah. and wanted to upset everyone and wanted to um to cause pain but now 
especially since like social media and looking at people differently and a lot of the bad guys are they all see themselves as the good guy and that's the important most marvel films like thanos who's like obviously one of the biggest you know movie villains in years you can see it from his point of view and why he thinks that what he's doing is good that he's not like hey i'm I'm the bad guy (laughs) he's thinking interesting uh this is uh, because we're starting to see that a bit more with like these people who like are causing a lot of pain they don't think they're they think they're the victims like uh, it's even that elvis movie is done from the point of view of colonel parker sure Right, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, the most exploitive, fucking horrendous. Yeah, it, but it's it's most of it. It's really just his point of view, his yeah. side of the story. You know, played against you know Lerman's you know kind of brilliant depiction mm. of of the talent of a guy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, those are the two sides you've got to deal with. Yeah. All I, right, well, we're not going to solve that. Yeah, it was good talking to you, man. Yeah, you too. James A. Caster in a hotel room, talking, getting down to it. He's announcing tour dates today. You can go to jamesacaster.com for tickets and venue info. And uh, hang out for a second. I'll, I got, I'll tell you some more stuff. So listen, Brendan and I talked for about an hour. We went uh, through my entire filmography, title for title. I didn't even know I did that much. And we'll do this in the future to talk about actors and directors. But this time we went over the marinography, uh, which was engaging, kind of getting that memory working. Here's a little uh, here's a little taste of it. Let me give you a taste. Here's a bump. Have a bump of the marinography. How did this thing happen that you doing the Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stone? Video? I don't know. You were you part of that? I was not. No, it just happened. Fuck, I don't even remember, but that was like a big deal. Like yeah. every, it was like it was this montage of people singing. I don't even remember which song. Like uh, a Rolling Stone. It oh, was yeah, a, like a it Stone. was a it was an interactive video. You could go to the website and switch the channels on a TV and every channel you went to was synced up with the person with on the that song. channel doing, doing the that, song, lip syncing yeah. the song to That's whatever clever, moment yeah. it was at. It was a big deal. It was Kinda. you and like the like the uh, Pawn Stars and uh, uh, Drew Carey on The Price is Right. All right, maybe and- it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't subscribed to the full Marin on WTF Plus to get all our bonus content, plus the full WTF archives, click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com. And click WTF Plus. This week I'll be in Columbus, Ohio at the Southern Theater on Thursday, August 4th. Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm at the Old National Center on Friday, August 5th. Louisville, Kentucky at the Baumhardt Theater this Saturday, August 6th. I'll be at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles on August 10th. I'll be back at Dynasty Typewriter in LA on August 14th for perhaps a TikTok crowd work show for my introduction into TikTok. Just cut it up, man. Just do quick shots. Get the kids in. Get the kids into the shows. Hey, do me. Do me. That's what they say. Bust my balls. I'm here for the ball busting. Lincoln, Nebraska at the Rococo Theater on August 18th. Des Moines, Iowa at the Hoyt Sherman Place on August 19th. And Iowa City, Iowa at the Inglert Theater on August 20th. In September, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Boulder, Colorado, and Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In October, I'm in London, England, and Dublin, Ireland. 
Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Um, I think I can take a vacation in Vancouver. So I can look around. Find me a place to settle down in a few years. Can you dig it? Okay. Here we go.
lives. Monkey and La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Cat angels. Cat angels. Cat angels. Cat angels. 